Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning, and welcome back to New Books in History. My name is Piotr Kosicki, and I'm a professor of history at the University of Maryland in College Park. I'm so pleased today to be joined by Professor Alfred J. Reber, uh, who is the University Professor Emeritus at Central European University and Emeritus Professor at the University of Pennsylvania. Professor Reber really is one of the giants of the field of Russian history, uh, authored edited or translated 11 books, including The Struggle of struggle for the Eurasian Borderlands, which won the Bentley Prize of the World History Association, and Stalin and the Struggle for Supremacy in Eurasia, which was shortlisted for the Pushkin House Book Prize. And today we're going to be talking about his book out last year, 2022, with Yale University Press, uh, with the tantalizing title, Stalin as Warlord. Uh, Professor Reber, welcome to the program. Thank you, Piotr. It's good to see you again and have this chance to chat about things that we both are interested in. Oh, absolutely. And I know that the listeners here are going to be riveted to hear about the book about you, and I hope they all go out and uh, check out the book for themselves after hearing our conversation. If I may just begin by uh, directing you to something with which you began the book, uh, I think that this is a, quite a striking anecdote, in part because it seems that your own interest in this subject matter goes back to your own early years. You talk about having put together a scrapbook in fifth grade about World War II on the Eastern Front, and then generating, what was it, 27 scrapbooks in total when you were a kid uh, about this subject. I was wondering if if uh, I could ask you, uh, what happened to those scrapbooks? Did, uh, did they disappear or did you keep them when you decided to become a professional historian? How, how is it that you decided after decades to come back to World War II on the Eastern Front? Well, my, uh, my father, who was a, a great figure in my life, uh, he didn't have a higher education, but he was always extremely interested in world events. He had been a soldier in the First World War. And uh, so he, he was one of the major influences in my life. And he... Uh, collected these books together and had them bound. And uh, it was lovely, it was a surprise one Christmas uh, when I was in graduate school, and here were all these scrapbooks bound and said, History of World War II in gold letters, and then Alfred J. Reber. So, in effect, my first uh, publication. So I kept them and I brought them to Budapest, and it's interesting you asked the question, what happened to them? Because very recently, I called the Open Society Archive, my old friend Istvan Rev, who runs it. And I said, Istvan, look, I've, I've got these scrapbooks. I don't know whether you're interested. Uh, come over and see them. So he took a look and he said, oh, we'd love to have these. So they are now uh, <coughs> situated in the archive in Budapest, and uh, anyone can come and look at them. <laughs> There's some great photographs in there, particularly uh, from Life magazine during the war. And uh, actually, uh, uh, the scrapbooks deal not just with the Eastern Front, but with the war in general. So there's a lot on the Pacific, there's a lot on the uh, the European sector, and uh, of course, on Russia. I, I was going to ask then, if, if when you were looking at these scrapbooks with uh, Istvan Rev, did you uh, were you able to sort of reconstruct your own thinking as the ten-year-old Alfred Reber or the eleven-year-old Alfred Reber? You know, what what was it that that guided you when you were putting them together? 
Oh dear. Uh, I'm afraid nothing uh, terribly intellectually exciting. Uh, I know that uh, I used to wake up in the morning at uh, seven o'clock, turn the radio on to hear the latest news, and then go to school. And from the sixth grade on, uh, my teacher uh, designated me as the sort of rapporteur for the daily news. So every morning when I showed up, I got up in front of the class and sort of ran the discussion on what was happening in the war. Uh, and uh, I didn't have any, uh, I mean, I didn't have any strong political feelings about, let's say, the Red Army or communism. It just didn't enter into the discussions in my household. But I will tell you that uh, two years ago, um, I was uh, walking through uh, Shabbatag, uh, Liberty Square in Budapest, and uh, I was passing in front of the Soviet War Memorial, uh, where uh, every uh, uh, May, seventh <coughs> on the liberation uh, end of the war, the Soviet ambassador shows up and places wreaths on the war memorial. So this was before the war in Ukraine. And uh, so I, I watched the ceremony, and then I came up to him and I said in Russian, uh, excuse me, Mr. Ambassador, I'm an American. And when I was a child, I was fascinated by the great exploits of the Red Army. And so I followed uh, uh, their liberation of Eastern Europe daily on the radio and in keeping scrapbooks. And he looked at me with utter astonishment that an American should come up in Budapest and tell him about how great the Red Army was <laughs> from an American who was 10 years old at the time. Uh, I enjoyed his surprise. And uh, I was, uh, of course, uh, deeply saddened by uh, what has happened since uh, I no longer follow the Red Army or the Soviet Army with the same kind of enthusiasm. I, I can imagine. We'll, we'll circle back toward the end of our conversation to Ukraine because it's hard not to think about it when reading your book now. Uh, but I, I, I want to stick for a moment with the, the sort of the long roots of the book and its subject matter, if I may. And that is obviously you had a long career in between uh, those childhood scrapbooks and the uh, completion of the book Stalin as Warlord. Was uh, Stalin's place in World War II, was the larger architecture of the Soviet experience of World War II always on your mind? It, it's, I mean, you've written on so many different topics, it's probably very difficult to generalize, but I'm just curious, what happened to the topic for you? Was it always in the background, or is it something that you decided to return to after you retired? What happened to the... Uh... No, it, it goes back to my PhD, excuse me, my PhD thesis uh, at uh, the, what was then called the Russian Institute, now the Harriman Institute. Excuse me, I, I, my voice is fading. Just have to cough for a minute. And uh, I, I arrived at the Institute with a uh, uh, a uh, background in Russian history at Colgate, uh, and it, it kind of vague idea of what I was interested in. Uh, I was really interested in Central Asia, but uh, my uh, mentor at Columbia, Philip Mosley, who was a, a great figure in, uh, in the history of the early Cold War, uh, uh, had been at the Ultra Conference and as a translator, and uh, he said to me, well, you don't know the languages of Central Asia, but since you know French and Russian, uh, why don't you do something more contemporary? And that is the history of the French Communist Party during the Second World War, because you'll be able to interview uh, 
people who were in the French resistance. And since we can't get access, uh, this was 1954, uh, to the Soviet archives, the best thing would be to get access to uh, the French archives and to interview Frenchmen from all sides who were involved in the resistance uh, and the cooperation between the French Communist Party and de Gaulle, which was a very interesting relationship. So that's where I began, and I, I found it fascinating to talk to uh, former members of the resistance, and by the end, to uh, members of, uh, of the uh, French government. Uh, and it's funny that you should mention this book because I, I was just uh, uh, looking at it for the first time in years, and a letter fell out. Uh, and it was a letter from Michel Debray, who became uh, the premier of France. And I interviewed him uh, when he was uh, just the senator. And it was a letter in which he said, you know, I have read your book, uh, and I give you permission to quote me. I think you have understood perfectly the French the role of the French Communist Party. I thought, well, I should have used that in the blurb. <laughs> but anyway, it began then, and uh, then, uh, then I switched uh, to the 19th century um, for reasons I don't have to go into. Uh, and it was only that I came back to the Soviet period uh, in, uh, during uh, Perestroika when the archives did in fact open. And I thought, oh, here's a great opportunity to uh, find out whether I was really uh, off base or whether I had uh, got, got it right about, about Stalin, the French communist. And I'm happy to say I got it mostly right. Uh, so then uh, I realized uh, how important Stalin was because, uh, because of my reading and teaching in Russian history and Soviet history. But the first time I went to Moscow in January 1956, I was among the first hundred Americans who were given visas uh, to visit the Soviet Union after the death of Stalin. And uh, we were, and I saw Stalin. I saw him, which I don't think many people uh, today can claim. Of course, he was dead, uh, but, and he was in the tomb, and he was lying next to Lenin. And it was an amazingly dramatic moment in my life, because we were led into this very dark chamber, which, uh, of course, people have visited since, since Stalin's body was removed. But in those days, there he lay in his field marshal uniform uh, next to Lenin. And uh, there was a little, uh, I should say, psychodrum put on for our benefit. A woman who was a professional mourner was mourning the death of Stalin. And she was renting her hair and screaming and, and, and groaning and crying. And next to her were standing two young Soviet soldiers rigid at attention. And that image shall always be uh, in my mind. Uh, and then, of course, later at the 22nd Party Congress, another dramatic moment which lodged in my memory, uh, Khrushchev was just describing Stalin again, dumping on Stalin, uh, as he uh, hypocritically, uh, <laughs> since he was one of his henchmen. And uh, suddenly a woman got up in the audience, an older woman, and she walked down the aisle and she said, Comrade Khrushchev, Ilyich came to me in a dream last night. Ilyich, of course, was the familiar name for Lenin. And he said, Maria, I can no longer stay in the tomb with Stalin. Please remove him. And there was this, uh, in, in, in the 
recording of the uh, of the talk. There's this phrase in Russian, movement in the hall, which means people <laughs> are shouting and, and screaming. And so then they voted to remove Stalin from uh, from the so so everything uh, since then uh, has reinforced my view that here was a figure of enormous importance in the Soviet Union, but who always will be contentious, who will always be debated, not only there but everywhere else. And of course, to most people in the West, he is rightly thought of as a killer as someone who is responsible for the death of millions of people. Uh, but then the question arises, how in heaven's name did he leave the country uh, to victory uh, uh, in an invasion which uh, had the power behind it of the, of, of the most mechanized and, and successful army in, in European history up to that point? So, that was the dilemma. That's the, that's the dilemma that I constantly confronted in teaching and research. Yeah, thank you so much. I, 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 what I found, I mean, obviously, this is a, a book that covers a great deal of ground. And the, the idea of conceptualizing Stalin as a warlord in particular. I want to ask you about that choice of term, uh, but you, you talk about much more than the war itself. This is a book that delves at great length, especially in the early chapters, into the purges of the 30s. You talk about the afterlife of the war, the long uh, arms and outcomes and legacies of the decisions and innovations made during the war. I wanted to ask about Stalin's own place. As you were designing this book, as you were writing this book, obviously there are so many biographies of Stalin out there. And just in, in the past decade, right, we've seen obviously Kotkin's multi-volume work, uh, Hlevniuk, uh, and, and his uh, magisterial biography in English, uh, available, I, I guess, since 2016 or 2017. Well, Service has written a biography. And, exactly. Uh, yes. And, and then on the early years, Rod Suni. Uh, so, yeah. and then, of course, there's the classic uh, work by Conquest, Ulam Tucker. Uh, your book's not a biography, but the man is at the is front and center, and yet I, I was sort of thinking to myself, what genre do I call this? It's a little bit of a milieu history. It's a little bit of cultural history in the sense that for me, the I was as I was reading, I was thinking uh, practices and norms and the way that they were communicated, not just as a, a mechanism of power, but obviously that too. I, did you have a particular genre in mind for which you were going, or was it your intention really to sort of move in and out of different genres as you were attacking this question of Stalin as warlord? Well, certainly I, I didn't write, want to write another biography, uh, which uh, would be a colossal task in, in light of, of all the outstanding historians who who've written biographies. Uh, well, going back to the first one I, I read in, in undergraduately by Isaac Deutsch, which uh, was a very powerful work, which he compares Stalin to Cromwell, uh, which I thought was a very interesting comparison. But anyway, uh, no, I wasn't thinking of a genre. I guess I was thinking of, a, uh, of a, an approach that transcended genres. Uh, and that I would try to uh, combine what I thought was an intellectual history, a social history, uh, and a political history. And I've always been, for, for years, I, I was interested in the impact of the French Annal school, uh, in which uh, the, their aspiration was to combine these various genres into a new kind of synthesis. So that was, that was I guess, my inspiration and, and objective. Uh, but, but getting to your, your question about Warlord, uh, it's interesting, this 
came up again in a recent roundtable discussion, which will be published shortly in H. Diplo, uh, in which a couple of the critics, while they were uh, uh, very generous, nevertheless said, uh, how can you use the word warlord uh, for, uh, for Stalin? Because it meant a regional uh, leader in China. Uh, and I said, yeah, it did. But what does it signify? Well, first of all, it signifies somebody who combines enormous civil and military authority. Now, it doesn't have to be a region, it can be a state. And there was no one during the Second World War who combined the authority, the power of both the civil and military uh, uh, fronts as Stalin did. Not Hitler, not Mussolini, not Tojo. Uh, secondly, the term warlord has been used by several Russian historians, uh, Jeffrey Roberts, uh, 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 McDermott, uh, and others. Uh, so it wasn't my, my necessary invention. They saw his role here. And finally, I would say that uh, warlord uh, was also used uh, to identify Churchill in the Second World War. Now, why was that? Because he combined civil and military authority in his hands to a greater extent than any British prime minister since Pitt. So it has that kind of sense of the concentration of power and the immersion of the warlord, of the figure, in, uh, in, 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 down to the daily level uh, of, uh, of, uh, of running the war, uh, which I think in Stalin's case was exceptional. Yeah, thank you. I, I, I got the sense that in some sense, the, the hypothesis in your book, it, it wasn't that he was a warlord. I, I can definitely see how you're building on uh, that the, those earlier descriptions by Roberts and others, but rather a, a thick description of the kind of warlord he was and the, what guided him as such. And I mean, you talk about paradoxes all over the book, right? I mean, it's a, it's a word that's familiar in the Stalin historiography, I guess most recently from volume one of Kotkin's biography, but which I guess is, is subtitled Paradoxes of Power. But, but the paradoxes you get to aren't just in the man himself. There's the way in which, I mean, you describe it, I think on the first page of the book, the paradoxical character of his state building met its greatest challenge during the years of preparing for war, fighting it, and winning the peace. So it's about actually the state and the man and the people who surrounded him. I'm curious if uh, the way that he governed as a warlord, for you, really was a function more of the kind of man he was or the particular sort of constellation of elements as they lined up. You, you start, obviously, I mean, the book really takes off with the, the purges in the 30s, although you start in the 20s. Uh, is, it, is, is, is this a story of a creator and destroyer, uh, terms that you use, or uh, is it a man who was really confronted with a new set of realities and had to adjust uh, once Hitler did invade in 1941? Well, that's, that's an excellent question. And I think it goes to the heart of the book. And I'm not sure uh, upon reflection and uh, the response of my critics that I possibly made this clear enough. Uh, but of course it is uh, uh, I mean, it sounds like a cliche. It is both. It is the man, uh, but it also is the dilemma that the Bolsheviks faced, which was a paradox. That is, Marx said that revolution would take place in the most advanced industrial countries, and therefore the transition to socialism uh, would be immediate. Uh, because all the substructure, the class substructure would be there. The, the dominant of the proletariat 
their control over the means of production, there would be a, a rapid, uh, and perhaps to a degree, violent transition, but, but it would be by the majority of population uh, of the advanced industrial countries. Now, that didn't happen in Russia. And the Bolsheviks took the great gamble of taking power without the class base that was necessary to make the transition. So they had to create the substructure. They had to create the class relations which were supposed to be the prerequisite for taking power. And this was paradoxical because you create a socialist revolution in an agrarian, backward agrarian country where the majority is the peasant. And in order to transform though the majority population, you have to use violence. You have to use coercion. Uh, and Stalin wasn't alone in seeing this. When Lenin saw it, uh, he tried to overcome the problem by saying, well, it's an alliance of the working class and the poor peasantry. But still, you have to identify the enemy. And the enemy was this kulak, was the, the well-to-do peasant, but a very different, difficult to identify that. So the struggle within the party was how quickly and how much violence has to be used to make this transition. And Stalin was willing, uh, and that I think is part of his personality, uh, it was willing to accelerate the whole process. And anyone who stood in the way of that acceleration, who questioned it, had to be destroyed. So, yes, the paradox is in his, his preparations for the war uh, and the way he fought it and the way he ended it. But it's also in the nature of the society uh, uh, and the ideological aspirations of the Bolshevik party. The man himself, just to, to stick with the, the word personality you used a moment ago, I think one of the, a striking word that you repeat at various points in the book is demonic. And it's a word, I, 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 one of my own specialties is religious history. So I always think about the metaphysical uh, uh, re resonance, if I can put it that way, of that word. And I'm curious, uh, you know, how far these uh, descriptions, some of these descriptions of Stalin work for you in terms of their heuristic power. So, for example, when you talk about his demonic personality or his demonic intelligence, obviously he was also in many respects a nuts and bolts, uh, roll up your sleeves, incredibly hard worker. Uh, and uh, th th there is this this sense that I get sometimes. I mean, obviously, it's not just your book. More generally, in the Stalin historiography, sometimes he is an agent in his own story or in the story of of, of the Soviet Union, and sometimes there's a kind of ethos or an aura. And I'm just curious if the I'm sticking with the warlord term for a second. You feel like that term or the set of of schemata that 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 come with it. Uh, lend themselves to really focusing on what he did or some of these projections like uh i mean i, I don't i don't want to necessarily fixate on the word demonic but various characteristics of his personality that have been i think rightly described as evil yeah uh, i had a lot of trouble picking a term i think at some points i uh say, his dark personality or his extreme suspicion. But uh, the one term I avoided consciously and have been criticized for avoiding it uh, is paranoid. Uh, and I avoided it for two reasons. One, it's a clinical term and it's a if you look at the recent literature on uh, paranoia, uh, you determine that uh, the psychologists 
don't know what, <laughs> how to define it themselves. And so it has ended up with multiple, de uh, uh, multiple definitions. And uh, so I, I, I said it's a clinical term and even the clinicians can't agree. And secondly, it gets Stalin <laughs> in some curious way off the hook. In other words, if he was truly paranoid or insane, then, well, okay, you sentence him to life rather than execution. In other words, uh, he's not totally responsible for his own decisions because he is sick. Now, uh, uh, I don't think that was the case. I think he was morbidly suspicious. Uh, and his very famous quotation of his daughter, who said he once said he doesn't even trust himself. Uh, and yes, this was part of his personality. But I think that is rooted in his early life. And I don't think anybody has done a better job than Ron Sumi in this uh, monumental biography of Stalin before uh, 1918 in demonstrating how his life uh, transformed him into someone uh, who was thinking conspiratorially all the time. Incidentally, he is not the only figure in political history who uh, thinks conspiratorially, uh, and who, uh, who at the same time uh, believed that he, he was an outsider insider. I don't use that term, but here he is in a movement, Bolshevism, which is composed almost exclusively of intellectuals. He was not. He wanted to be, he aspired to be, and yet he distrusted them. So again, the paradox. Yes, he had to have his collected works published so that he would emulate Lenin. But, you know, you look at these collective works and there's nothing very original about what he was saying compared to what Lenin was saying or Trotsky was saying. Uh, he borrowed ideas from people and then made them his own. Uh, but I think there was a sense of, well, I won't say inferiority, but I would say of um, a feeling that uh, somehow uh, he had to assert his personality uh, in, in order to compete uh, with with uh, with those around him. Uh, you know, and, and there were a lot of people around him who felt the same way. There was a famous debate in the Politburo in I think twenty twenty two, uh, and Trotsky was holding forth. Uh, in this way that only Trotsky could, uh, brilliantly through flashing, uh, with flashing insights and so on. And Molotov, who had a slight stutter, uh, who was also not an intellectual, though he came from middle class family, said, not everybody can be a genius, comrade Trotsky. And I think this, this was the view, you know, Trotsky was engaged in his flights of rhetoric while Stalin was a practical man. And at the same time, he wanted to be known as somebody whose original ideas about the Soviet Union were part of the canon. One one of the I think the most challenging things about conceptualizing the Stalin in the Second World War seems to be the fact that on the one hand there are certain consistent features, on the other the paradoxes that you describe really make it seem like he's ping-ponging between different strategies or outright to completing U-turns here and there. Obviously, the most dramatic one involves uh, adopting, for example, elements of the uh, 
disgraced and executed Tuhachovsky's strategies and trying to bring back innovations after killing the innovators just a year or two later for the actual conduct of war. But there's there's so many examples, whether we look at the nationalities policy, you give so many examples of this. And I guess the, the, the one that just occurred to me while you were describing the uh, Molotov's intervention there has to do with what you describe in the book as the tension between distrust of specialists uh, and the reliance on specialists for innovation in conditions of desperation at war. Uh, in other words, if I, if I can maybe put, put it this way, does it seem to you, looking back, like Stalin actually simply made a calculated choice to abandon his own views temporarily due to the exigencies of war? Uh, or can we talk, you know, there's the famous line, of course, about the multiple Stalins. Uh, is that is that where we have to leave it? Because he did, in the end, bring the specialists back. And some of them, like Kapitsa, really made a, a heck of a career uh, in the end and didn't uh, get purged even after the war. But it seems like we have a very hard time determining if and when Stalin actually did change his mind about these core strategic elements. Yeah, uh, another good question. I think that um, his decisions to use certain people uh, or tolerate certain people uh, or rehabilitate certain people uh, had to do with circumstances. In other words, uh, at, at the same time that uh, he was an ideologue, he was also, as I said, a practical man. And so if he thought that an individual had a specific use uh, in furthering his aims, while at the same time that person did not have any political aspirations or did not express any political views which were distinctive from his, then he would uh, accept them. And there are lots of examples that I try to give in the book and some that I don't give, uh, which illustrate uh, this paradoxical treatment of people you know, like um, pulling Rokosovsky out of a, a labor camp and make, making him the commander in chief of the, of the, of the first Belarusian army. I mean, how do you justify explaining to people, well, this guy was a traitor, but now he's a hero. Uh, well, I need him. I need people who are, who knows what he would have done with Tuhachevsky if he hadn't killed him. Uh, so, uh, there's another example at the very end of the spectrum, which I don't mention in the book, but I think is very illustrative. And that is uh, Pasternak and, and Osip Mandelstam, two great, great poets. One survived the whole Stalin period, uh, the other died in a camp. Both were Jews. Uh, and both wrote magnificent poetry. Now, why did one survive and the other didn't? Because Stalin decided, and we have this evidence very clear, that Pasternak was not a threat. Mandelstam had written poetry that circulated in manuscript, which Defamed Stalin, which, uh, which I've forgotten the phrase he uses, his grubby fingers uh, executing people, whatever it was. And uh, Pasternak did not. Now, Stalin, the incident is, Stalin calls Pasternak up. And uh, he says, what do you think of your friend Mandelstam as a poet? And Pasternak is nonplussed. 
Oh, well, what can you say? And so he sort of stumbles around and says, well, he, you know, he's, we're different poets. And then Stalin in the end says, thank you, comrade Pasternak, for not defending your friend. And he hangs up and then he says to Beria, uh, or not with Beria, Yagaru, uh, strike, he sees Pasternak's name and he says, strike this name off the list of execution, uh, this holy fool, this holy fool. In other words, Pasternak is, he's not a friend. He's a poet, he's up in the air, he doesn't have any political aspect, and he doesn't imply that he's an enemy of mine. So I think, you know, it's the same thing with Zhukov, it's the same thing with Kapitza, it's the same thing with, uh, you know, all, all, all these other Litvinovs. Uh, they, they, they might not have agreed with him, but he didn't see them as a threat. I, the 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 book is full of I think really vivid uh, moments that you reconstruct actually similar like you said just now to these conversations where Stalin well in one way or another tells Beria no uh, or or qualifies right he's debate he seems to be debating Beria uh, f- around Zhukov or Landau. Um, uh, Landau. I mean, obviously, this doesn't apply to the Leningrad affair. Nikolai Voznesensky was absolutely a lost cause. But, but, I, but I, Stalin wh- waited on him. Right. Stalin waited. And Beria, who hated Voznesensky, worked and worked and worked and then discovered or uncovered or invented uh, a mistake in the accounting that could be used as a criminal offense. And then, then Stalin, the delay in the trial, everything points to the fact he didn't really want to give in. But, but he did. So, but this specific example, actually really, I'm glad you, you, you focused on, 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 on Beria there because I, I had a real... Uh, how do I put this? Throughout the book, I kept asking myself, right? We see Stalin as a warlord. You describe him as uh, a man who really focused on individuals and small groups, not institutions. The supreme commander at, who functioned as a hub holding individuals together. We know how hard he worked and how obsessed he was with centralizing power. And yet, not just in the uh, aftermath of the war when it came to purges like the, uh, the the Leningrad affair, but throughout the war, Beria's power was increasing and increasing. And I mean, reading your book, it seems very obvious that Beria was falsifying and fabricating and concocting conspiracy theories. Maybe we don't know for sure, but it seemed to me intention, or at least, you know, I could go back to your word paradox, uh, this uh, deference and this uh, empowerment of Beria that Stalin uh, sustained, right? I mean, again, it wasn't a momentary thing, uh, and the, uh, the entrusting him with the atomic bomb project in particular uh, to, at the end of the war. I find just extraordinarily striking, but it's not just that. I mean, he, he had his finger in so many pies, Beria. So, if I could just ask you maybe to reflect on, on on that relationship for a second, does that, in your view, challenge the overall picture that you have of Stalin, or is it simply a facet of how he governed? Well, he 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 needed people. Uh, I think that uh, Sheila Fitzpatrick makes a good case out for Stalin and his team. Uh, you know, and this this would be the other way of looking at it. Uh, of course, he needed people to administer uh, uh, all uh, aspects of the administration. He he used Zhanov uh, or Malenkov or Kazanovich or you know Molotov. All of these people uh, were given a certain leeway. 
uh, in uh, administering things. Uh, and, and the army generals, uh, of course, in fighting the war, uh, didn't have to worry so much as Hitler's generals did at the end about intervening with with strategic operational uh, operation details. Uh, the point I think you make is important. Why Beria had so much power, and I think that Stalin needed someone in the police who would uncover what he believed would had to be conspiracies uh, directed uh, against him. Uh, because, uh, after all, he was executing a lot of people and... Uh, and deporting hundreds of thousands. <laughs> yeah, right. And, uh, you know, it is amazing that there were no attempts on Stalin's life that we know of. And I'm sure in July 44, when he heard about the attempt of army officers in Germany to assassinate Hitler, that a big broad smile took over his face and he said, yes, yes. And Tuchachevsky wasn't there for me to worry about. Uh, and there was, of course, a potential military leader in Vlasov uh, who had defected, and, but Hitler did not want to uh, to use him uh, in order to undermine Stalin. So, I mean, that's another story. But I think that getting back to your point about Beria, at the end, of course, uh, the doctor's plot was directed against Beria. Uh, and he, he was beginning to suspect uh, the whole uh, 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 apparatus of the secret police. Uh, he had the deputy head of the NKVD uh, shot in 1951. Uh, he had, uh, he, the doctor's plot was obviously directed against Beria uh, because, uh, because Beria was supposed to find these things out. And then Beria was always more sympathetic towards the Jewish population, and that was another connection, since most of the doctors uh, in the Kremlin were Jewish, who were accused. So Beria could be could, was was uh, vulnerable. Even Beria was vulnerable. Yeah, but of course Stalin trusted him in part because he was a fellow Georgian, and he has supported Stalin in the Caucasus. And it was a long history, uh, but that gets back to another aspect of Stalin, which we probably don't have time to go into, and that is how much did Stalin remain a Georgian? Uh, and I say a lot, and a lot, most historians say not a lot. So we, we can argue about that forever. Well, I'll, I'll follow up right on that, if you don't mind, which is that I actually was uh, expecting more in some sense, but I not it's it's not a criticism. I really enjoyed the way you wove it in uh, where you did about the question of long durée great Russian chauvinism. I know this is historiographically thorny, right? Because it seems to overdetermine the the leadership style of whether we're talking about Lenin or, or especially Stalin. But um, what the point you just made that he remained a Georgian versus absorbing tendencies, he did absorb some. And you say, uh, I, I think the most striking pronouncement you make uh, is uh, that the difference with Stalin, and I'm talking about uh, any form of resistance to commands from the center being tinged with, seen as tinged with nationalist sentiments, the difference from Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, and Nicholas I, you say came from, quote, the extent and violence of his reaction, end quote. So I, I'm, I, I, if I could just pose this question, I mean, given the uh, breadth of the work you've done in the course of your career. I mean, there's really nobody out there who's qualified like you to make this assessment, I think. Uh, to what extent did 
imperial legacies. Stalin obviously was a student of history. Did imperial legacies uh, affect and shape and, you know, enter into the way that he exercised power during the war? Well, uh, I have tried to answer that question in a, an essay uh, which will be published in a collection called Recollection, Recollecting Stalin, edited uh, uh, by Louis Siegelbaum and Arch Getty. And it'll come out with Cornell Press in, uh, in the fall. <clears throat> and my essay is this called uh, Stalin as Historian and Legalist. So what I tried to do was to show how Stalin used history and read history in order uh, to inform himself uh, and in order to justify uh, many of his policies in terms of the imperial legacy. Uh, and he did that in, in very skillful ways, I think. Uh, and uh, Jeff Roberts also has a recent book, Stalin's Library, in which he talks about the books that Stalin read. And, uh, and I try to uh, expand on that idea. Uh, and what Stalin inherited was a country which I <laughs> tried in another context years ago, which uh, uh, I don't know how much it's been adapted uh, by people, but uh, this brings us to Putin. Uh, what I argued uh, years ago in, in an essay in Imperial Russian Foreign Policy was that uh, if we want to understand Russian foreign policy, we have to understand it in terms of four major problems that haunted, maybe that's too strong, that faced, confronted Russian leaders uh, since Peter, Frederick, uh, Peter the Great. And it runs all the way through, and I think it's now, uh, it confronts Putin. Uh, and these four are uh, how to deal with a multicultural society, how to hold it together, uh, how to deal with the problem of relative economic backwardness, it's relative, uh, how to deal with permeable or uh, 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 frontiers, uh, and uh, fourthly, uh, how uh, of the fourth one. Anyway, these four elements, uh, which I say uh, come up repeatedly, and they inform, as I'm now uh, trying to point out something else I'm doing, uh, all the great reform movements, they, they confront this problem, uh, how, uh, oh, the, the fourth one is cultural alienation. Is Russia part of Europe? Or is it part of Eurasia? Or is it something different? And so if you look at Putin's foreign policy, not, not the, including the invasion of Ukraine, you find that all these four elements are there. You know, his war in Chechnya, uh, the, the, the problem of, uh, of uh, the permeable frontier, the, uh, the threat of NATO, uh, the desire, the necessity of taking Crimea to protect the Black Sea, uh, the idea of cultural alienation building up uh, Russia, uh, Russia's national heritage, replacing, replacing the uh, October Revolution with the Second World War as the great event of Russian history. Uh, and and uh, finally, uh, the attempt to uh, overcome Russia's dependence on one basic export. Uh, oil. I mean, where do you see in your daily life 
or in the daily life of anyone who's sitting and listening to this, an object on their desk, in their kitchen, in their wardrobe, which says, made in Russia. It's not there. I have things that are made in Taiwan, South Korea, the Marshall Islands. You know, uh, 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 Italy, France, of course, Denmark, Mexico, but nothing made in Russia except what I brought back uh, uh, from, from, from there. So uh, it's the same problem, and uh, uh, this is why uh, his, his dependence now on China and India, because they provide the market for oil. Uh, and without that, uh, he'd be in big trouble. It strikes me, Sam, since you, uh, you turned to Putin, one thing that I was reflecting, and there are so many outcomes and legacies that, that, that are on the table in, 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 the, in the discussion, especially in the, in the final chapters of, in the epilogue of your book, about what came out of uh, Stalin's governance as warlord, uh, but but and some of these are big, right? I mean, there's <laughs> big in the sense of transcending any one particular narrative. There's atomic weaponry for the USSR. There's Sputnik, but there's also uh, the transformation of the army and its place in the Soviet Union and what you just described, the sense of replacing revolution with war. I mean, I obviously thinking back uh, to, to, to Amir Viner's book, Making Sense of War, but, but more generally also uh, trying to understand the relationship that Stalin left behind, even through de-Stalinization, between uh, World War II and the core of the Soviet project. Uh, and what you say in the book, among other things, is that the history of, uh, quote, a hierarchical and nationalistic Soviet army, end quote, began on June 22, 1941. And obviously, you know, Zhukov wasn't uh, killed off after the war, in spite of the, the the, the incredible prominence he achieved. And if anything, I, I look around the Soviet bloc and the USSR itself. And, I mean, military intervention became a major feature after World War II, right? 1956-68, uh, as a scholar of Poland, I look at Wojciech Jaruzelski and martial law. It was an option uh, to wage revolution through, you know, sending, moving troops to point A or point B. Uh, I wonder if you feel like uh, that, in some sense, the, these behaviors or these techniques are um, really the legacy of the story you're telling. And I mean, this brings us up to Putin, but obviously there's a, there's a lot that happened in between, that the army, whether it's in Afghanistan or, uh, now in, or, or later in Chechnya, now in, in Ukraine, uh, the Soviet and then Russian army became the bulwark of, and repository of national pride. It seems to me in a way that, that Stalin enabled and then maybe tried a little bit to walk back but couldn't control. I mean, if I could just ask you to reflect on this for a second, you know, Putin could consciously or maybe would have, if things hadn't gone so badly, was trying to emulate consciously some of what Stalin had done. Uh, but it seems like there are also a lot of unintended consequences when it comes to that kind of empowerment over the long term of the army and how central the war became. I don't know, does it, looking back, does that seem like a paradox to you or, or maybe that is really the core of the Soviet story? Well, um, some of the outstanding historians of Imperial Russia have talked about Peter the Great's militarization of the country. And that uh, this then went on uh, to become a major theme. Uh, and what I think happened is that this broke down toward the end of the imperial regime with the defeat in the uh, Russo-Japanese War. And that the army lost a great deal of its, uh, its uh, eminence, prestige, 
The Bolsheviks replaced the army, but then Stalin realized that the army was as, as necessary, or even more so, than the party in preserving the Soviet Union and in the long run uh, in extending the influence of, of communism uh, or the Soviet view of communism. So I, I think the army uh, acquired this enormous significance and continued to do so in, uh, uh, in the Soviet period up to the putsch against uh, Gorbachev. And I think that that spelled the end of, of the army as, uh, as uh, now I think what, what Putin has tried to do is to restore it. And obviously all the, uh, the, the publicity, the, the parades, the, the, the statuary, the, you know, Zhukov and uh, Peter the Great, and all of this uh, reliving of the, the great military triumphs of the Russian state and, uh, and the Second World War, all of this uh, he has attempted uh, to, uh, to build up the army. But as recent commentary has shown, uh, what, the, <laughs> what was the army doing, doing uh, uh, when Prigozhin uh, made his march on Moscow? And there were two famous abstentions. One was the army and the other was the secret police. Now they're supposed to be <laughs> the bulwarks of the regime. So if you can't count on those, unless the whole thing was to set up, uh, then uh, you may be in trouble. You may be in trouble. But that remains in the, in, in the realm of more speculation <laughs> than I've engaged in up to the present. So I think we should probably leave it there as uh, the realm of, of uh, future historians uh, who, if they ever get access to the archives uh, in, uh, <laughs> in 70 years or so, uh, maybe they'll tell us. Well, I certainly hope so, though from to where we sit presently, it's, it's hard to imagine when that might be. I, I, I know we're, we're, we're almost out of time, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to bring us to a close, but I, it strikes me the, the point that you were just making about uh, Putin and his sort of his fantasies, if you will, of trying to uh, reanimate some of what had been enabled by Stalin during uh, World War II, it, it also speaks to, I mean, the paradox, I, I, you use this phrase, Pyrrhic victory, which obviously, you know, you, rather not a phrase, a question that you pose at the end of the book. Was World War II a Pyrrhic victory? And if I read you correctly, I guess your answer is yes. And I was just curious if at the end of the day, what you described a, a moment ago about how the army ultimately, you know, discredited and, 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 and turned out to be a kind of an illusion uh, when the coup failed against uh, Gorbachev and then St Putin clearly showing that the, the army just is not there in the 21st century. And yet um, the, 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 the Soviet project went on for decades after World War II. Uh, so I, I, I know by way of closing, I'm just curious if you have a, a few thoughts you might want to share about this question of whether World War II was a Pyrrhic victory for the Soviet Union and why that ultimately did or didn't matter? Uh, I've, I've had a debate with Jeff Roberts about uh, the Pyrrhic victory. He said, well, how can you say that? You know, they, they did win. And uh, what was the alternative if they lost? Uh, Russia would have been carved up and there would have been a, a terrible uh, a massacre and so on. And so, yeah, I, I agree that he had to win or else Russia would have been thrust back into Asia uh, and enslaved. 
but uh, the cost, the cost was so was beyond what would have been necessary had Stalin prepared for the war uh, uh, in a forthright and not paradoxical fashion. And even if he had fought the war uh, in a different way, particularly uh, that, that uh, his strategic mistakes in the early years uh, cost it a great deal. Now, ultimately, uh, uh, I think, uh, um, yes, they had to win at whatever cost. Uh, so uh, that's, but I think, I think, I think that's the dilemma that Putin faces. He has to win at whatever cost. And I'm not sure that everyone fully understands that. Uh, because if he loses, the country falls apart. I mean, we will see another time of troubles that will make the period after the revolution uh, look like a picnic. On that note, <laughs> I think I'm going to bring our conversation to a close. Uh, I really appreciate the chance to talk to you about uh, Al about Stalin as warlord. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for your wonderful questions, which just led me down uh, the right road and uh, <laughs> were sufficiently stimulating and, uh, and provocative so that I, I could respond the way I did. Uh, so uh, I don't think you uh, served me just uh, softballs. <laughs> there were some curves and some fastballs there, and I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Well, thank you so much. And I mean, just to, again, for our listeners, please uh, look for Alfred J. Reber's book, Stalin as Warlord, out in 2022 with Yale University Press. Um, my name is Piotr Kosicki, and you've been listening to New Books in History. Have a good afternoon, everyone. <laughs>